Well, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, we'll find our text there this Lord's Day as we pick up in verse 19. If you've been with us, you know that we've been walking through uh, the book of Galatians together for some time now, and we've come to this point now where Paul is instructing the Galatians in regards to what it means to walk by faith and be led by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the phrase he uses here is to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit. And so uh, today, we're coming to a point in the text where he's comparing uh, what it looks like to be led by the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. And so I'll call your attention to what we talked about last Lord's Day. We talked about that popular notion so often among Christians that we need to just let go and let God. And yet what we find in the Word of God is something very different. Uh, that we're instructed to actually hold on, to, to grab onto the Word of God, to, to be led by the Word, empowered by the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. And so today, Paul's going to unpack this more in the passage we look like, again, to compare what's this truly look like? Well, what is the mark of the believer through the fruit of the Spirit as compared to the mark of unbelief and the works of the flesh? And so we're going to look at Galatians 5, verses 19 through 24. And out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this text for us. Again, remembering this is what the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. This is God's Word to His church today. And this is what it says. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You would pray with me, church. Father God, I pray that through the power of Your Holy Spirit that You might help us to discern this passage today. To, to rightly understand that there are clear marks of those who believe and those who do not. That we might clearly understand what it means to be saved by grace, by faith alone, trusting in Christ alone, and the works that flow from that saving work. Lord, I pray for any here today who's yet to confess Christ as Lord and place their faith and trust fully in Him. God, I pray that they would, that Your Spirit would work in that way. Lord, bless us now as we consider these words we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there are a series of billboards that have caught people's attention throughout major cities in our nation. I'm, I'm not sure that I've seen one in this area, but perhaps you've seen one in your travels. Uh, the billboards simply have five words in large print that read this. Millions are good without God. Millions are good without God. 
These are sponsored by a group called the AHA, the American Humanist Association. And, and their desire is for people to understand that, that you don't need religion to have morality. In fact, one of the directors said it this way, we want people to know that you can be good without God. Now, too many people think that morality is the exclusive domain of the religious. We're here to prove that assumption wrong. And now on this point, I would agree with this individual. You, you don't have to be religious to be moral. Uh, you can seek to be a, a moral person without faith. In fact, I think there's much confusion in the church today. And for many of us, we've spent much of our efforts striving in our faith just to be good moral people. So often what we do is we think, well, if I can just achieve these things, if I can stop doing these sins, if I can start doing these good things, well, then I'll be who God wants me to be. And often in that effort, we'll come up with a, a list of rules, a list of laws. Don't do this and do this. And we reduce our faith down to a law-abiding practice. And this is the very thing that confuses the Gospel for so many. In fact, this is the very thing that the Apostle Paul was writing to the Galatians about. Paul had come to Galatians and had preached that the true, genuine Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then the Judaizers had come in behind him and preached a false Gospel of works. They had told people that faith in Christ alone was not enough to save them. That they had to go back to the Old Testament, back to the Old Covenant. That they had to do these things, check off these lists, in order to truly be a part of the people of God. And there are many who still operate over that, under that false gospel today. Many who think, well, if I can just do this and not do this, if my good just outweighs my bad, if I can just be a good moral person, I'll be okay. And yet as we come to the gospel of our Lord, as we come to this passage in Galatians, we're reminded that we are saved by faith in Christ and Christ alone. And when we are truly saved, when we have truly been born again, there are works that flow from that salvation. But our works do not save us. Our works come as a result of our salvation. And so as I've said many times, good works don't lead us to salvation, but salvation should lead to good works. And Paul unpacks this for us by talking to us about the fruit of the Spirit. But before he goes there, he points out for us what it looks like to live a life in the flesh. And so we're going to look to these things and hope a better understanding what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, beginning there with that first point there in your outline, as we look to the text, we see this. The flesh, the flesh leads us to please ourselves and to sin against God and others. Paul refers to this in verse 19 as the, the works of the flesh. And he says these works are evident, that this is the way our sinful nature works itself out. These are our inclinations. Now, Paul here in saying works of the flesh, he doesn't give us an exhaustive list. He doesn't tell us every sin that anyone could ever commit. In fact, there is no exhaustive list of sins in the Scriptures. There are many times when there are lists given, there are categories given, but we see there are endless ways in our depravity that we can find to sin. And we also find that we are tempted to sin in different ways. And so as we look at these works of the flesh, Paul's not saying, well, everyone in Galatia is tempted in all of these areas any more than what we're saying this morning is that you're equally tempted in all these areas. You know, James says in James 3.2, for we all stumble in many ways. There, there are many ways that we might see our sin work itself out. 
But what Paul does here for us is he gives us some, some categories, some groups that can help us better discern what it looks like for us to live according to the flesh, these works of the flesh. And so I'm going to look at it in three groupings today. The first grouping is sins that are directed towards ourselves. The second, sins that are directed towards God. And the third is sins directed towards others. So we'll start by looking at the list he gives us and pointing out those sins directed towards ourselves. And it's the very first ones he mentions. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. That Paul here is basically saying any form of intimacy outside of the context of a covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. These things are impure. These things are immoral. We see God's design for intimacy back in creation there in Genesis 2 where God creates all things and all things are good. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we see this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh this is God's design for intimacy and human relationships and yet we see in the verses that follow there in Genesis chapter 3 that man rebels against God and man rebels against God's created order and we see this rebellion especially in this area and so there are so many ways that people follow through on the desires of their heart on the passions of their sinful heart Paul says these are the works of the flesh and these are evident. And he says these are things that lead us to sin against our self. Now that may seem like a curious phrase, a, a sin against myself. Well, what does that mean? After all, we live in a culture that kind of celebrates, well, as long as you're not hurting anybody else, as long as it's just you, you're not hurting anybody else, it must be okay. And, and yet God says, no, that's not okay. He says sexual immorality, sensuality, these things, even when they don't involve physical acts, they can involve the mind, they can involve things we put before our eyes. He says these are sins against the body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Now, I've always found it interesting in the Scripture that we're instructed to resist the devil, but to flee sexual immorality. He says, flee it, run away from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. And so in this first grouping, Paul makes it clear that when we sin in these ways, we, we are sinning against our body, which is made in the image of God and was created for the glory of God. But that's not the only way we see the flesh working itself out. This second grouping is sins then directed towards God. He mentions idolatry and sorcery. Now, all sin is sin towards God. Categorically, anything that is sin is a sin against God. For example, you might consider what we see in the Scripture about David. King David, a man after God's own heart, we see him get to that point in his rule and his reign where he sins greatly against God. He, he enters into an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. He then tries to cover that relationship with deceit and with lies. Ultimately, he becomes a murderer in trying to cover up his sin. So here's David, an adulterer, a liar, a murderer. And he comes under conviction and realizes the depths of what he's done. Now listen to what he says in response to his sin in Psalm 51, verse 4. David says, against you, speaking of God, against you and you only 
have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment? Is David saying here that he had not sinned against Bathsheba, that he had not sinned against Uriah, that he had not sinned against his people? No, I think what David is saying here is that he understands that principally, foundationally, his sin is an assault on God. His sin is a rebellion against God. And friends, the same is true for us today. We may think of our sin horizontally and how it affects those around us. The Scripture says primarily it's an offense against God. And that's why David writes, he is rightly deserving the judgment of God over his sin. So all sin is a sin against the Creator. But what we see here that Paul is giving us is there are times in our sin where not only is it a sin against the Creator, but it's directed towards God. And he mentions that in these two areas. Idolatry and sorcery. And we've talked about idolatry many times in the past. We see in this context in Galatia, likely what Paul is referring to is the many idols of false gods and pagan religions that were prevalent. And so there in Galatia, it wouldn't have been unusual for there to be a family who perhaps they were struggling with having a child. And as they were struggling with having a child there in the market, someone would be selling a, a little idol that represented a goddess of fertility. And they would tell that family, well, if you'll just take this, this idol and put it in your, your home, if you'll pray to it and make offerings to it, then, then this goddess will give you a child. Those were the idols that it's likely that Paul is referencing here. Things like that. So we can read that and think, well, we're far removed. We don't, we don't struggle with those things. And yet we see very clearly we have many idols of our own in our culture today. In fact, when you just look up the definition of the word idol, the first thing you find is an image we worship. The second, a person or thing we greatly love or revere. Now think about that for a second how quickly we can go from revering and loving something to it becoming our idol. We live in a culture where so many worship other people. So many worship and idolize man-made things. They go from admiring to adoration and worship. That is the driving force in their life. We have idols. They may look different than those in Galatia in this day, but we have those idols of our own. And we see here that that is the, the work of the flesh. That, that man-made religion. To, to make something with our own hands that we can then worship and adore. He also mentions sorcery here. Again, you may think, well, I'm, Pastor, I'm not really wrestling with witchcraft. <laughs> I didn't cast any spells on the way to church this morning. But, but this word here in the Greek, it's pharmakia. That may sound familiar to you. It's where we get the word pharmacy from. It's a word that was originally used just to describe medicines, but then took on a different form in the culture because people would start to take what was originally a medicine and they use it for a hallucinogenic effect. And in the days Paul's writing in, what they would do is they would take this and they thought, well, if I just take these drugs, this will enter me into the spirit realm. I can really worship the gods. I can walk among the dead. I can talk to the deceased. If I'll go into this hallucinogenic effect from this drug, that, that'll bring me into a more spiritual existence. And these are ways that Paul saw the people sinning specifically directly towards God and against God. But it doesn't stop there. We see this third category of sin that he mentions, this sin directed towards others. 
Paul gives us ten examples of how we sin in particular against one another. There are four of these, you see, that I believe are attitudes, things that are within us that you may not see an external manifestation of. For example, he mentions enmity. Enmity is a a hostility, an adverse attitude. It it can be what we might call today a, a bitter root. It could be, for example, someone in your life who you were at odds with over something that happened so long ago, you might not even remember what that something was. You just know you're at odds with them. You're not on their side. That there's a bitter root in your heart towards them. He goes on to talk about jealousy. That that desire that that they have something you should have or, or, or that their life's better than your life. And you start to compare and you start to envy, he says. Envy is coveting. It's desiring what other people have. And you can be an envious, jealous person this morning and we may not see that on the outside. Now, on the outside, things might look fine. But in your heart right now, you, you may be dealing with these issues. Maybe with people in this church this morning. Where you envy them. You envy their life. You are jealous of what they have. You're envious that they haven't gone through the trials that you've gone through. You're jealous that perhaps their family seems so more together and with it than yours does. You're envious that where they're at in life right now, you think, well, I should have that. And you begin to say to yourself over and over again, that's, that's not fair. He talks about rivalries here. This self-seeking motive, this competitive nature. Now, we're not talking about a, a rivalry between you know, U of K and U of L fans, although there's probably much sin to be had there. But, but he's speaking here more of just kind of that bitter root. That, that taking pleasure when something wrong happens to that other person. That, that division that can so ex- easily exist between two people or two groups of people. That, that sense that, well, my side's right and their side's wrong and I can't wait for that to be proved. That, that taking joy in their suffering. And he says these internal attitudes then, they, they work themselves out now to where we can see measurable actions. He mentions things like strife. So now that envy and jealousy works itself out to where and now we're having arguments, we're having fights, we're, we're, we're face-to-face over these issues. There's grumbling, there's complaining. That can come, he says, in fits of anger, an outburst of anger. Perhaps you've had a situation before where somebody said of you or you've said of someone else, well, well, where'd that come from? <laughs> There's just this sudden outburst, this sudden anger over something that seems so small. So often where that comes from is these issues in our heart, that, that envy, that, that jealousy, that, that rivalry. Those things we don't deal with, that bitter root. And then all of a sudden there's this outburst And then those can lead to other things. Dissensions, divisions. Where we're not content just to be on the opposite side. Well now, we want other people on our side. We want to draw the line in the sand. We want to go to battle with them. Now I realize I'm speaking in the context of a church and we would never have these types of divisions in a church. But That's sarcastic. There's lots of divisions in the church. Wake up. In fact, sadly... That's what so many churches are known by today. Not so much by their love for God and their love for others, but they're known because, oh, I know them. Yeah, they're, they're upset over this. Or they divided over this. Or yeah, that church over there started because, well, they couldn't go along with these folks. We're known more by what divides us than what binds us so often. 
Paul says this is a work of the flesh. Then he gives these last two that relate to drunkenness. He says drunkenness and carousing. This isn't just a, a person in their inebriated state. This is a, a gathering of debauchery where they would come together and just inebriate themselves to the point where it's just utter carousing and debauchery and wickedness. And they are hurting one another, hurting others. Notice what Paul says about these things in verse 21. I warn you, as I warned you before. <laughs> Paul here says, listen, this, this isn't the first time I've brought this up. Now, we don't know exactly how many times Paul would address these things, but chances are, when he was there among them, ministering to them, he, he probably went over some of these very things. He, he could see the outward appearances, the outward manifestations of these works of the flesh. He probably called people out on these very issues. And now he's continuing to see these things, even in their desire to be religious and to follow these works and the law, he still sees these sinful practices. He says, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, that, that is a very sobering verse when we consider the gravity of it. He says if you do these things, that word means if you make a practice of doing. So Paul's not saying here that if this is something that perhaps in a, in a moment of weakness, perhaps in just poor judgment, a lack of wisdom, that, that you did this and now you've repented of it. He's saying if this is what you are characterized by, if this is the ongoing fruit of your life, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will be barred from that entrance. You will suffer under the eternal wrath of a holy God. And that will happen rightly. If these are what the practice of your life is, is this, if this is your habitual, continual practice, that is not the mark of a believer. Because in a believer, as we see, there's the Spirit of the living God that's doing battle with the flesh. That it wants to put the flesh to death. In fact, Paul says, these are not what should be the marks of your life. Rather, you should have the fruit of the Spirit, which takes us to that next point. Point two. The Spirit then leads us to deny ourselves and to love God in others. So notice the contrast there. The flesh leads us to please ourselves. The Spirit leads us to deny ourselves. The flesh leads us to sin against God and others. The Spirit leads us to love God and love others. Paul here says the Fruit of the Spirit. There's a contrast here between these two things. The flesh, he says, these are works, plural. There are many works of the flesh. Meaning, again, you might struggle in a way someone else doesn't. There are many ways our sin may manifest itself. There are many works of the flesh. But notice he says there is a singular fruit of the Spirit. Now he describes different types of fruit. But what I believe Paul is saying here is that these are not to be viewed as, as spiritual gifts or as, well, some of us have this one and some of us have this one. Or, or you know, I, I'm good at patience, but I'm not good at self-control. So he's saying this is a singular fruit. This, this is how the Spirit of the living God works Himself out in us. So we can't say, well, I've got one and not the other. No, the fruit should be at work in our life. We may see one more than others. There may be some here that we were inclined to before we even came to faith in Christ. We may have been brought up in an environment where we were just taught patience. Where we were considered to be a patient person. And then the Spirit of the living God gets a hold of us and then really grows us in that area of patience. 
There may be others that are the complete opposite of who we were in the flesh. And there's a great work to be done there. But the contrast we see is through these many works of the flesh and the singular fruit of the Spirit. You may think of it this way. But let's imagine each of us, our life was represented by a field. And in that field, there were, there were weeds everywhere. All kinds of different weeds. These would be representative of the works of the flesh. And for some, those weeds may be taller in areas than others. For some, it may be you've got a lot of this type of weed, and I've got a lot of type of this type of weed. And those weeds are all around this field, but there in the middle of the field is this one tree in each of our fields. And from that one tree, there's all this fruit coming. Now, maybe somebody's got a taller tree than another. Maybe you have larger fruit than another. Maybe there's more of one type of fruit than another. But, but all this fruit of the Spirit is represented in that tree. And as that tree grows and flourishes and the Spirit of God is at work, it, it overcomes that field and it's slowly squelching out those weeds. It's cutting off the sun from them, the nutrients from them. Little by little, they are squelching down and they are dying off. They're still there, but they're being put to death. That's a picture, I think, of what it is here that we see these these works of the flesh and this fruit of the Spirit. Again, Paul never describes these as equally opposing forces. If you are born again, if you're a child of God, then the Spirit is putting the flesh to death. (laughs) And we can have confidence in that. We're not sinless. And we won't be sinless until a new heaven and a new earth. But that is the battle that's taking place. That is the work that God is doing. And so Paul here describes this fruit, I believe, categorically, just like we saw the works of the flesh. And so I want to look at three types of fruit, just like we looked at three types of works of the flesh. Beginning with this first one, the fruit of the Spirit in which we deny ourselves. He says faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That faithfulness describes the walk of faith and Jesus Himself says the walk of faith begins with self-denial. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. See, the very introduction into the faith is that you repent and you turn from sin, and you turn to Christ. We deny ourselves from the starting line. And not only says that, he talks about gentleness. That gentleness is humility, and that is the mark of genuine belief. In fact, James says it this way in James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. See, the natural man, the man of the flesh, wants to boast about himself wants to point all the attention towards Him. The Scripture says we are glory seekers. And we want people to look at us, but when we are truly born again and redeemed, as people look to us, we want that to point them towards the Creator. And any good within us, any light that we shine, is merely a reflection of God. And so we use those opportunities not to boast of ourselves and boast in the flesh, but to boast of God in His saving work. The proud person, the one who always boasts in themselves, The one that exercises no humility, no gentleness. It's not the mark of a believer. It's the mark of unbelief. It goes on to say that the fruit of the Spirit in which we deny ourselves is self-control. That that, that restraint from from desire and from sin. And again, this isn't a call for us to try harder to stop sinning. No, this is a reminder that if we truly are saved, we have the Holy Spirit within us who then is a spirit of self-control. 
to where the believer cannot say, well, I couldn't help myself. The believer could not, cannot say, well, I didn't have any choice but to do this thing. Now, the Scripture says if you are in Christ, that He provides a way of escape. Again, that doesn't mean we will become sinless. But it shows us who has the power in our life. And with the Spirit having power, then we indeed can exercise that restraint and self-control through the power of the Holy Spirit. We see this fruit of the Spirit in denying ourselves. We also see this fruit of the Spirit categorically in our love for God. Paul speaks here of love, joy, and peace. So the Spirit empowers us to love God. The Scripture says we are able to love God because He first loved us. Scripture says is that you don't have a love for others, that's reflective that you don't understand the love of God. That if you truly have been loved by God, you will love others. If you've truly been forgiven by God, you will forgive others. If you're holding bitterness in your heart today, if you're intentionally withholding forgiveness from someone, that there can be all kinds of issues there, all kinds of complexities. It could be that person's unrepentant. But, but if your heart is set on, I will never forgive them. The Scripture says that's an indication that you don't truly understand what it means to be forgiven by God. Our offense is great. And the problem is, so often we have a low view of God and a high view of ourselves. When we understand the depths of our sin, we then have a high view of God and a low view of ourselves. Which leads us to rightfully repent. Which leads us to understand, well, God loves me, I must love others. 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. We also see that produces this joy in our lives. John 15, Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. Hey, if you know the context there in John 15, Jesus is essentially saying this, if you really love God, you will desire to obey Him. And not only will you desire to obey Him, but you will have a joy in your heart that comes from obedience to the Father that nothing else can give you. And so friend, if you see God's Word as burdensome, if you see God's commands as, oh, I just, I just dread that, if there's no joy in obedience to the Father in your heart, that that is a biblical indicator that you may not understand nor have responded to the Gospel. Not only do we see this, we see that this love and joy then give us peace. And this is a peace that the world cannot give us. This is a, a peace that comes through the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. Peace does not come with God through negotiation. Peace comes through Christ dealing with our enemy and destroying our enemy on the cross. The Scripture says that when Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, that everyone has rebelled since. That we are born with this sin nature. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. We are enemies by birth of God. And the only way we can be made at peace with God, the only thing that can reconcile us to God, is the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died on that cross in your place and in mine that we might be made alive. That's why we call it being born again. And this is what gives us peace with God. Paul goes on here. He talks about this fruit of self-denial, this fruit of loving God. He talks about then the, the fruit of loving others. He mentions patience and kindness and goodness. And these are works that the Spirit does. 
And the Spirit does these things because the Spirit is the one who enables us to consider others better than ourselves. That's truly what leads us to patience. Patience doesn't come through some self-help process where, well, if I could just learn to be more patient. You think about times you struggle with impatience. Also, too often, those times we are struggling with impatience are times when we consider our needs more important than everyone else's. Well, you just need to hurry up. Because I'm ready. My needs are more important than your needs. And in order for us to have patience, we need to have a right understanding of what the Scripture calls us to. We read it in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... So Paul's saying very clearly, if you've experienced the Gospel at all... There's any of it here, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So what does that look like? He goes on to tell us. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, and let each of you look out not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Friends, how many conflicts, how many divisions in our life would be put to rest if we truly embraced what God's Word says here? If we did nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility we counted others more significant than ourselves. This is a work of the Spirit. And Paul says of this work in verse 23, against such things there is no law. And that might seem kind of out of place. Well, why would there be a law against love and joy and these other things? Well, I believe Paul puts this on there as a bookend to say, listen, all these works of the flesh, the law speaks about all these things. In fact, if time permitted, we could go back to that list of the works of the flesh and we could categorically look at how the Ten Commandments address all those things. That the law is against the works of the flesh because the law is restraining the flesh. That's one of the purposes for the law. That it would restrain wickedness and evil in the flesh. But what Paul is saying here is we don't need a law against these other things. We don't want to curb and restrain the fruit of the Spirit. We want to see it flourish. And so friends, as you consider these things this morning, they present us with a very clear question. It's the final point there in your outline. Number three, and it's this. Are you being led by the Spirit or led by the flesh? Are those weeds overtaking your field? Or is that tree flourishing? What is your life categorically defined by? By this ongoing fruit of the Spirit in your life where sin is putting, being put to death day by day by day by day? Or by these works of the flesh that it seems no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, they keep rearing their ugly head. And if that's the case, it may be that your attempts have been at morality. Your attempts have been to make yourself a better person. But you've never genuinely submitted yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So Paul writes here, I believe this picture, he says in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. Paul is calling our attention back to the crucifixion where we see Jesus died once and for all for our sin. 
so that we might die to our sin. And we don't become sinless again at that point of conversion. But we start a process at that point where the Spirit is putting the flesh and the works of the flesh to death. And we long for that day in a new heaven and a new earth where we'll no longer be with sin. Or we'll no longer have the ability to sin. Paul here gives us that picture of crucifixion and says just as Jesus died for our sin, friends, we need to just nail our sin to the cross and we need to be done with it. But this is a slow process and we are tempted to go back to that cross and back to that sin time and time again. One commentator I read this week said it well this way and I'll give you this picture. They said the first great secret of holiness lies in the degree and the decisiveness of our repentance. If besetting sins persistently plague us, it's either because we've never truly repented or because having repented, we've not maintained our repentance. And then he gives this picture. It's as if having nailed our old nature to the cross, we keep wistfully returning to the scene of its execution. And we begin to fondle it, to caress it, to, to long for its release, even to take it down again from the cross. We need to learn to leave it there. When some jealous or proud or malicious or impure thought invades our mind, we must kick it out all at once. It is fatal to begin to examine it and consider whether we're going to give in to it or not. We have declared war on it. We're not going to reopen the negotiations. We have settled the issue for good. We're not going to resume looking at it. We have crucified the flesh. We're never going to draw the nails out. And yet, friends, this is the battle with the flesh. And the good news of the Gospel is if you are indeed a follower of Christ today, He has empowered you with everything you need to not only fight this battle, but to ultimately see victory in this battle through the power of the cross of our Lord Jesus. Scripture does not say we will be without sin at that moment of conversion. But it tells us Christ died for our sin. And it tells us we can see through this sanctifying growth of the Spirit in our life, we can become more and more like Christ and less and less like ourselves. The question for you this morning is, is that a picture of where you're at today? Are you being led by the Spirit are led by the flesh. If you're being led by the Spirit, then praise God. That work that He is doing is making you more and more like Christ. You may feel at times defeated in that. You may feel beat up at times over that. But the Scripture tells us to hold tight, stand firm, and walk by faith. Friend, press on. But if that fight's not there, if the evidence of your life is categorically more these works of the flesh than the fruit of the Spirit, then friend, don't be encouraged. Be warned. The call of the Gospel to you today is to repent and place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. God does not need your morality or your good works or your best attempts. He asks for you to bend the knee and to confess Him as Lord and to turn from your sin and trust in Him. That's the call for you today. So whether the call for you from the Scripture is to be encouraged or to be warned and repent, we want to invite you now to respond to this Word. If you would stand with me as I pray for us.
Father, as we come into this time of response, I do pray for us as we sing, as we worship. I pray, Lord, that You would help us to have a higher view of who You are and a lower view of ourselves. That, that we would recognize the sin in our own heart. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who perhaps they're, they're struggling with some of these very things that Your Word has pointed out. And maybe, Lord, they're struggling in shame. Maybe they feel embarrassed. Maybe they've got things going on in their heart and in their mind that they think, well, if anyone ever knew this, there'd be no turning back from that. That, that they'd be mocked, they'd be ridiculed. Lord, I, help, I pray You would help them to see that, that we need to bring those things into the light of the Gospel. Lord, I pray that they would confess You, confess Christ and repent. There may be others here, Lord, this morning who have long ago made that profession and confessed Christ at some point in their life. But Lord, they're, they're struggling with sin. They're struggling with, with not crucifying the flesh. They're struggling with going back over and over and over again to it. Lord, would You help them to trust in You, not in their flesh. Would You help them to repent? Father, for all of us, would You help us to put our hope in Christ and not in ourselves and not in this world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.